All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad you are here and that we get to spend this time together studying and encouraging one another, especially as we're about to get ready to worship together. Uh, before we begin our class, let's start with a prayer. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you so much for this day, the opportunity that we have to uh, worship you. We hope that you are glorified and exalted by our praise. Pray that you be with us as we go into this time of study. Help us to consider your word and how to share it with others. We thank you so much for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we're continuing our study. We have now uh, hit the other side of our discussion. We've been build, building up uh, some arguments and thinking about how we think and reason and how the world does that as well. And so what we're going to be focusing on today is getting these specific topics and trying to understand as much as we can about the arguments being used in the midst of these main uh, topics. And let's see if we can understand where the world's coming from and how to interject the biblical worldview into the midst of it and how to take scripture that speaks to the heart of man and guide the mind of man. Uh, our topic for the day is going to be on abortion. Um, we're going to hit it from a lot of different angles and we're going to come at it is, um, as objectively as we possibly can, but we also want to understand where people are coming from. And so we're going to look at some objections and some statements that people may make about it. But before we get into this, I hope, uh, as you've just been going through thinking from our class, that you have found some opportunities in life to take your stance on morals and values and ethics and apply them. Uh, yesterday, we went to the, the movies together. Uh, we've got family in town, and all of us loaded up, and we went to the movies, and we went and watched uh, The Lion King. And it's funny, when you start thinking about different ethical decisions um, it's funny how just things, even in entertainment, will come out and show some of that. And so we were watching Lion King, and there was one scene in there where um, Simba was trying to decide what he wanted to do, and Pumbaa was coming in, and he was telling him, look, you just need to live for you. That's the most important thing. Don't worry about the circle of life. You just focus on what you need to do. Um, don't be concerned about everybody else. You just think about what best suits you. I thought that was just, you know, that hit exactly what we've been discussing um, but you actually find as the movie goes on, Simba actually considers everyone else. And he thinks about what would best suit not just himself, but his family. And not just those that are close to his species, but those outside of it. And it's just funny, when you start thinking about different movies and pieces of entertainment or music, stuff like that, and you start digging into it, there are ethics and morals uh, being discussed everywhere, even among the animal realm. So um, it's something to think about there. But that stuck out to me. Uh, and I thought I'd share that with you. Things like that, though, should illustrate for us our ethics and morals. What we've been discussing, where we were last week, we talked about what Jesus can teach us about making the right decisions. Specifically, when you go to the crux of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, you get this idea that he wants you to think deeper than just the actions themselves. There's more to life than just the actions. It's the heart and the mind. It's the virtues. It's values. It's everything coming together to live out God's will. It's going back to the original point of creation that we are made in the image of God. If we're made in the image of God, we're going to have concern for ourselves as well as concern for one another because you are made in the image of God just as well as I am. And if we understand that, then we are going to have this idea of reciprocity for one another. We're going to help one another while feeding in Scripture, while feeding in truth to determine how to best have that relationship. 
So Jesus comes in, he says, okay, be concerned about your quality of life, the salt, as well as the light. You've got the inward value, but you also have the external showing of it. The salt and light are these two headings over the Sermon on the Mount that then gets into these. But don't be focused just on, hey, I haven't murdered anybody. Have you hated someone? Have you insulted somebody? Have you degraded someone? Have you had this view of them internal that then comes out externally? Before you get to the point of murder, there are some things that you may build up that you may have been holding back. Those are just as detrimental. You may not have committed adultery, but what about all the things built up before you get to that point? Your view of relationships, your view of other people, what about those things? All of that is important for how we make ethical decisions. Jesus teaches us that by using the law, the Judaic law, building onto that with the Christian foundation of what are we about now? What should we be doing? And essentially, that's what we've been working through here with our ethical ladder. We start at the very bottom. Just when we're talking about decisions in life, you talk about, you know, is it illegal? Well, I'm going to stay away from it. Unless I need to challenge it scripturally, then okay, we can invoke uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and we'll go from there. But if you're just going to be making the decision, you ask, well, okay, what, what is the legality of it? But then, what about me? What are things that I prize? What are some values that I want to hold on to and I don't want to violate those or compromise those? Can you make statements of things I will never do? Then you start thinking about your relationship to others and you think about the oughtness of a situation. What must I do? And even challenge yourself a little bit further. What if everyone did this? What if everyone took the same stance that I take? But then the top rung, which is always what we're trying to build up to, we're getting to that point. You kind of have to stair step, especially when you're dealing with people, because they're going to look at the law. They're going to look at values and virtues because that's something that we prize at you know, in humanity and in society, and then we function within, you know, those realms with one another. But where we're trying to get to is what does God have to say about this? Because that's going to trump everything else. That's actually going to decide everything on the lower rung because we're trying to get to this top point. So what does God have to say about it? And how do we respond through natural law? Things that he has written on our hearts about morals. How do we piece all this together? So this is our ladder. This is how we make, we are making decisions. This is all building up to where we are today. So let's ask a question, and uh, let's talk just a little bit uh, broadly, and we'll narrow it down as we go through. What is the value of life? Now, you know where our topic's going. We're talking about abortion, but let's set that to the side just for a moment, and let's just talk generally because this is actually going to apply to some other topics we're going to be dealing with. What is the value of life? How do you respond to that? Um, how does the world respond to it? We'll take um, criticisms or... Uh, uh, support for it. What do you think the value of life is? And how do we determine it? How do others determine the value of life? Okay, you can't put a price tag on the value of life. Why? Okay. Okay, we're made in His image. God gave it to us. There is no price tag on it. George, what were you going to say? Okay. Okay, so the value of one life. Um, 
is that Jesus gave his life for all. And so we can kind of see uh, how that played out. Okay, what else? Okay, so looking at hazard pay, that in a particular job setting that more money may be paid out because of the, you know, the hazardous situation that somebody may subject themselves to in a job, and you can kind of see that um, benefit and payout of them in the midst of that hazardous situation. Okay, Jim? Okay, so um, according to Acts chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius, Peter gets that teaching from God that, you know, God is not partial. He sees the value of life all around, and not to be a respecter of persons is what uh, gets taught there. And many other passages as well deal with that same thing. Okay, what else? So you look at um, the actions of some individuals that they don't see any value in another life because they take other people's lives um, as if it were a, a game. Um, and then, but you consider the rationalization in that, though. How can you rationalize that? Um, is it really that they don't value other people's lives or they value their own lives more than theirs or... They just gloss it over and they don't even want to think about, is there something broken? I mean, you start thinking through all of that, uh, but how can people just take other people's lives and not calculate all the things that we're kind of building onto? Yeah. Okay, so there is only one person that gives life. So far, no one has been able to create life um, that, aside from God, uh, man does not do that. Man takes away life, but God creates it. So God gives the value to life by putting a soul within them. And you look at his teachings of um, 
you know, gaining the world and losing your soul, um, he puts a big price tag on what's, what's valuable and what's important. Now, let's think for a moment and shift it just slightly. Outside of our Christian worldview, going into the world, what do people see as the value of life? Or how do they, how do they rationalize it? Or how do they just see who we are and what we do? We see it, okay, it comes from God, and I get that. That's within the world, the biblical worldview in our context. But outside of that, what are people saying? Is there any value of life? So, yeah, you see people um, killing just for material sake. They put more value for stuff. They, they pursue stuff. And it's actually exactly what James says in James chapter 4. If you start in verse 1, he asks the question, he says, What causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? So why do you steal? Why do you kill? It's because you want those things, you desire those things, more than other people or the, the higher purpose, which is God. And that's exactly what James deals with in James chapter 4 in those first few verses there, which is why he says, you pursue God and you flee from Satan. You pursue that which is good versus that which is carnal, which is uh, detrimental to us, those desires that are out of context. Go back to James chapter 1. How and why are we tempted? We are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our what? desires. Eventually that gives birth to sin. Yeah. Say that again. So yeah, you look... All right, so you look back over history, and there are a lot of people that put different levels of value. They put their life as a higher value over others. And so look at some of these, uh, you know, Stalin and, and people along those lines of how did they justify what they were doing? Putting a higher value on themselves versus other people. So how do you bring that back into balance? How do you see all life as valuable? Um, isn't that what our laws should be about, but in some foundation, that's what they're trying to encapsulate. And here's an example. Um, a lot of our debates on a lot of the ethical and, and moral decisions and uh, legislation of many of those uh, has to deal with the 14th Amendment. Um, and I've got it up there fully, and you may not be able to read it, so I'll just read it. And then tell me what sticks out to you or what, what kind of arguments are being based on this. All persons, born or naturalized, 
in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So what is our world saying about this? Or what, what are some statements in here that stick out to you? Not just for our discussion of thinking about abortion. Uh, that's definitely going to come out of this. But just in general, what, what is being said? What's the dialogue surrounding this amendment? What's its purpose in its creation? And what's its application? Okay, so it was in conjunction with 13 and 15 as well, uh, dealing with slavery. So in its original context, uh, that was one of the, the sparks of it. Um, okay? Okay. The definition of a person. That's one of the, the reasons behind it, of trying to determine what is a person and what rights do they have, what privileges can they receive, you know, specifically here in the United States, but just, you know, that can span out a little bit bigger of why would we even say that people have rights or why that uh, personhood matters, okay? So that's definitely part of it, understanding that definition of what constitutes a person, okay? Very good. We're going to see more of that come out. What else? Okay, due process. There is a process, there is a standard, there's a way to get to that conclusion. Um, ensuring that up, making sure that everyone is given that privilege and that right. Okay? Anything else stick out to you? How is this being used in our world today? Okay, so looking at um, those that are born or naturalized um, in the United States, uh, there's a lot of discussion going on in those two terms. Okay, what else? Say that again, sorry. Okay, so the last clause is what's being used to uh, support uh, the liberal agenda, the equal protection of the laws. Deny to any person within this jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. It's being used. People are discussing these things. Okay. In context of our discussion for the day, thinking about abortion, how is our world justifying and rationalizing their decision 
their decision to terminate a pregnancy. Uh, we're going to go all over the place with this, um, and we're going to try and understand the scriptures as well as what people are saying and what are they going through because we need to be effective in teaching. Um, I, there's I know, a lot of things that come to my mind. Uh, before we go to the next slide, uh, the other day Shelby and I were driving down um, Madison Avenue, and right over there, right next to McDonald's, uh, as Madison Avenue begins, there's a trailer that gets set up. Um, it's got a mobile clinic. Uh, it's actually one of our local doctors that uh, he sets that up himself. That's something that he does on a volunteer basis to offer chance for people that are pregnant to come in and to receive, you know, care, but also to be able to, you know, get ultrasounds, uh, to be able to see, hear the life that's within them. You know, that I love that uh, because, you know, his mentality, uh, being a religious man, that he says, that's what I want people to see. That what is within them when they are pregnant, that it is a life. And this is where the discussion is going to come from, is what are people saying about that? You know, is it just a lump of cells within an individual or is there something more there? Um, and what we see in the 14th Amendment, does it apply to them? So I want to have that in our minds, and I want to go a little bit deeper just to where we are right now, thinking about abortion and law. As we're going up that rung, we just kind of we need to understand where we are um, and what people are saying. It's illegal for states to completely prohibit abortion. Um, we're going to get in these major cases of what sparked that and, and why are we in the state that we are today. But this is where we are. Um, it's legal for a woman to have an abortion for any reason deemed a health issue. Go back to our little survey that we did at the beginning of this class. When I ask, is abortion wrong in every situation? We feel a little bit of a tug because we have to start thinking, well, what about when there's a health complication? What if there is you know, something going on that is it the life of the mom or the life of the baby? There are medical cases and there are things that happen in, in situations, sadly, that do come up. But looking at the state of the laws and things that are in place today, uh, we can look at these two things, and this is kind of where, where stuff is. Um, but we need to be thinking through it. We've got to think, what are people seeing? What are they experiencing? And how can we meet them where they are? All right, so three major cases, and you're probably very familiar with this first one, Roe versus Wade. Um, short synopsis. What, what is the conclusion of Roe versus Wade? What came out of this? Say that again. Okay, the right to privacy includes the right uh, to abortion. What else? Uh, some other things that you may notice in there. Um, it argued that the 14th Amendment's right to privacy should include the womb itself. Abortions during the first trimester were allowed. After the first trimester, states were allowed to decide for themselves. After viability, the point at which the fetus can live on its own outside the womb, 24 to 26 weeks, the state was allowed to prohibit except in the case of medical emergency. Um, I would encourage you to go back and read some of these cases a little bit more thoroughly to see what was going on. Uh, we know about Roe versus Wade. That's one that, that pops up a lot that we should be familiar with. 
But there was another one that actually happened the same day, uh, Doe versus Bolton, which happened in Georgia. Um, and I'm going through my notes and I'll pull it up. So uh, before this case happened, here's what uh, Georgia had in place. The, the Georgia law in question, which they wanted to contest, was this, that uh, there were certain restrictions about who was allowed to have an abortion and why. Uh, and here's some things. Allow me to read this. See, uh, other restrictions included the requirement that the procedure be approved in writing by three physicians and by three-member special committee that either, one, continued pregnancy would endanger the pregnant woman's life or seriously and permanently injure her health. Number two, the fetus would very likely be born with a grave, permanent, mental, or physical defect. Number three, the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest. In addition, only Georgia residents could receive abortions under this statutory scheme. Uh, so the case that came out, they were saying, all right, those, those are the parameters and the restrictions that are in place for abortion. So Doe, uh, she comes in and she says, you know, that's unconstitutional, that you would have to have all these restrictions and wanted to have that overturned. Um, so there's one of the cases. Like I said, I would encourage you to read into these a little bit more. Um, I pulled in a bunch of different notes on it. Let's see. Yeah. So uh, Chris was saying that um, having done some research in the, the 90s on this, um, that looking at the, the number of abortions at that time and then how many of them were actually, you know, in the United States and worldwide, um, as what was documented, how many of them, what's this, the percentage of those that were health complications? You said 6% of that number. Um, or those that were based off of rape or incest, that it was 1% or less um, in the 90s. Now, I don't have the data in front of me, and I didn't pull it for the, the sake of this class. Um, but that's something that you think about, is that, okay, well, there's such a small number of those, which is the case. But we're still basing you know, the, the, the value of life. How do you get people to see that? How do you get people... Uh, that are rationalizing whatever their decision, they say, well, you know, we should be given this privilege because it's our bodies we want to decide what to do with it. Um, how do you take that information and be able to teach them when it is an emotional situation? 
Um, people are using emotions to justify it on one way and using emotions on the other. How do we bring that into balance? There, there's just so many things that it makes me think of. Um, but, you know, looking at these cases, uh, you got Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton uh, that happened in Georgia on the same day. Uh, and then the last one is Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This was another one uh, that stuck out to me. Let's see. So the Supreme Court ruled that abortion rights are consistent with, I, with ideals of personal autonomy. So the right to make one's own decisions and bodily integrity, the right that one has over their own body, uh, and that they can be left alone and decide what they need to. And so that was another one uh, that came out. Let's see, yeah. So people that are struggling with if they, you know, have an abortion that was health complications. Now, I don't know, breaking that percentage down further. And if somebody pulls it up, I gladly receive it. Of, I don't even know how many of them would be marked down of if they were going to have a child that had complications. Deciding, well, it would be better for me to terminate that child's life than for them to be born impaired. Or, um, you know, the length of their days might be shorter because of that impairment. From, a, from our view, we say, well, we're going to turn that over to God's hands. We're going to ask for his, his health and his strength in that. So there would be some selfish part of it of, I don't want to be able, I don't want to carry that burden for, you know, my life to have to take care of that child, you know, hands-on, 24-7, and that's with an impairment, but people are saying the same thing with a healthy baby, <laughs> of not wanting to, to be responsible for that. Okay, so you said Indiana. There's some some discussions going on about, and this is part of it is making um, aborting for race or gender um, and being biased that way. You know, if you come in and say, well, there's health complications, things like that, that goes one path. But what if somebody says, well, I just really wanted a boy. I just really, you know, I I. Maybe, and this went genetics, and we didn't even put this one on here, and I, I debated, and we might actually go that way of looking at some of the um, genetic arguments that we're having, uh, that our world's having about what kind of procedures can we do genetically, and, you know, how ethical can we be with those? I, I might actually pull in that class of looking at that information, but, you know, that's where they're going to. They're saying, all right, we can perform these tests um, in the womb that you can determine, you know, even all the way down genetically what this child is going to be predisposed with and making an abortion based off of that decision of, you know, they might have a genetic complication or it may not be the genetics that I want.
Okay. So looking at the, I appreciate you pulling up those, uh, Jeremy, that uh, looking in 2018, the state of Florida alone, their abortions, the percentage of those that were based off of rape, incest, um, and, and just complications in general, the aggregate of those, less than 1%, you know, 1% all the way up to maybe two on extreme cases. Just for the state of Florida alone, you share that over the, the remainder of the other states, and you probably have a, a good average of the small percentage that are based on you know, rape, incest, and um, major complications documented. So, you know, those are things to look at, and that's what we need to, to be talking about. Caleb, yeah. So uh, what Caleb was saying to, to condense that down is that, you know, looking at logically what people are saying about a, a child in the womb, can you make the same case for a two-year-old? Um, and looking at some cases throughout the UK of uh, someone that she was told that her baby was going to be born healthy. It was born with Down syndrome. And she said, you know, had I known at that time, I would have aborted. Um, and looking at, you know, things that come out like that, and, and that actually is going to go to the next part of our discussion, um, and uh, we'll continue on, sorry. Um, that thing about personhood and what is being said about it. And I've got a couple of points just for us to consider about how do you use or what people are doing to use the 14th Amendment and how do you determine what personhood is. One of them is on uh, vitality. The point at which the fetus is able to live on its own outside the womb. And, and that's what's being said. All right, this, this child is viable at this number of weeks. Now, you, I've already got the, the problem that's up there, and you can see it, and we could take it even further. But determining when a child is viable. You know, I know just within you know, this room, uh, our connections with other people, looking at premature births and looking at that number and, you know, really what science is able to do to be able to take care and nurture a life, even if it was born early. You look at vitality, what determines vitality? You know, is it just the number of weeks, the gestational number of weeks and what is being formed at that time? That's part of it. You know, as the child is developing, it's developing its organs that it needs to live. 
and it needs sustenance and, and particular things from the mother as it is growing. Um, but when is it viable? When could it be born and be sustained on its own through medical care? What is that number? Is it a number of weeks? Is it a, is a, a process? What is it? But as people are trying to determine personhood, well, maybe it's based on vitality. When it, is the child able to live outside the womb? But then part of this would depend on medical text and not the baby. Um, another thing would be brain development. At two weeks, brain activity can be detected. Medical death is defined by the cessation of brain activity. Medical life should be defined by activation. So, you know, when is a person dead? At what point are they actually constituted as dead? Well, it's the cessation of brain activity, when it stops. So could the argument be that when the brain activity starts, that's when life begins? And, and I like this, and I borrowed this from a, a friend that presented on this, and he talked about preactivity brains are not dead. They're developing. Dead brains don't develop. I thought that was really good. Of you know, they're they're trying to document when does brain activity activity begin, but you got to get to that point. And the development, uh, I think, a lot can be said there. There's some good things. Uh, yeah. You think about when the soul enters an individual. And, you know, even within the theological realm, for and we won't for the sake of discussion today, but when does the soul enter the body? Is it at conception? Um, you know, how far in? There's discussions on that, but something that you do think about is that God gives life and that he does take care of it in the womb and beyond. Um, and passages that we'll be able to pull out on that, but there's a consolation there uh, is what Bill was saying. But just still thinking about what people are arguing or what they're looking at. Maybe another part of it is uh, sentience, self-consciousness, and the ability to feel. So the problem, you would reverse that and say, well, does a person lose rights while on a coma? If you know, they're determined, the person who is determined when they feel and they're, they're conscious about themselves, when do you even get to, to put that on a chart? When do you determine that? Uh, maybe that their personhood begins at the point of birth. Not many people are going to say this. Um, a fetus is the same a few minutes before the birth as it is immediately after. Um, but you look at like what New York and some other states, what they're, what they're talking about, uh, it's just sad how far people are willing to go. But I guess for our discussion today, what I'm trying to determine is how do they justify that rationally and how can we help them where they are to get them where they need to be? How can we walk them up the ladder? I hope that you're seeing some of this come out of it's not just what is legal. We, we're, we're in a state, we're in a situation where things are the way that they are. We want people to be Christians. We want people to see eternity and their life on that way. Some are not there yet. Some are in a very emotional situation and facts are important. But we also need to be able to discuss with them and get them to where they need to be. We've got to walk them up the ladder. We've got to be able to show them what this is all about. And it does come to, I think, strong point here is conception. From conception, an embryo already has a unique and separate genetic identity. Scientifically speaking, embryos aren't potential people. They're the first stage of the growth cycle 
of humans. You know, you can get as far into genetics as you want to and think about that. But from conception, the formation of an individual, regardless of what you want to say with the soul or anything like that, we're talking to people, something can be said there about this developmental stage, uh, what is being created. Uh, let's go a little bit further before we run out of time, um, and we'll we'll pick up next week. Uh, but I just I want to continue looking at what people are saying. So here's some things that come out. A woman has the right to do what she wants with her body. Abortions will happen, even if illegal. It's safer to make it legal so it can be regulated. Unwanted pregnancies create overwhelming financial hardship. We should not force unwanted children onto unprepared parents. Society should not force women to bring severely handicapped children into the world. Society should not force women sexually assaulted to continue their pregnancies. So here are things that people are saying. Um, What sticks out to you and what's a a proper response? Pick any one of them. I mean, we could spend an entire class on each individual one, but what do you see and what do you think? So a lot of, you know, kind of boiling these down, what, what's consistent through there, a lot of it is selfish in nature, okay? What else? Inconvenience? Yeah, um, the, the inconvenience factor of, you know, just that's being imposed on me. Well, there's some decisions that go into place of how this happens um, biologically. And so thinking about things there. But there are also, we get things that are outside of that control. And I, I don't want to just put a, a, you know, a spin on it that way because there are some that are outside of control. But a lot of the responses here, what we're dealing with, is people acting like that was not their decision. You know, it just... Okay, so looking at support, uh, a lot of these, um, they would just have the church to help them, encourage them to get through some of these situations. I, I think that's right. Um, you know, I say it all the time. I, I don't know where we would be without the church. Um, real quick, the, the bell's about to ring. Something that uh, 
uh, George said that I wanted to give this illustration, and I'm going to put a pause here before we get uh, too far in because the bell's about to ring, and we'll we'll pick up next week. And I intended probably for this to go on as well, and we'll we'll add to it. But allow me to give you this illustration to go off of what you were saying. Um, Judith Jarvis Thompson, um, she she makes this illustration. So allow me to read this. She compares a woman with an unwanted pregnancy to a person who has been kidnapped in order to provide a life-saving blood transfusion to a world-renowned violinist. The violinist is dying, and the person providing the transfusion is essential to the violinist being able to continue living. Even though the violinist will die if the person unplugs from the transfusion, Thompson argues that there is no moral obligation for the kidnapped person to continue to provide this life-saving service. She then argues that the woman with an unwanted pregnancy has essentially been kidnapped by the fetus and forced to provide a life-saving service by continuing the pregnancy. She concludes that the pregnant woman has no obligation to save the fetus's life and is morally justified in ending her pregnancy, even though it would result in the death of the fetus. That is, even though the fetus may die, the pregnant woman has no duty to provide aid in the same way that the person attached to the violinist has no duty to provide aid, even though the violinist will die if the aid is not provided. People will say a lot of things. And our world is struggling, not just understanding morals, but understanding the the larger scheme of things altogether. And I want to put a plug there uh, and a pin in that. And let's use that as our discussion for next week. We're going to get into what I'm going to call top-rung discussions. What does Scripture have to say about this? How do we come back to where we need to be? So uh, that's what I've got. I don't think I heard the bell, but we'll let it go. So there's that. All right, we'll we'll be done for the day. I think the bell is supposed to ring. (laughs)